Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 220 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Good listeners of TMK will know that we talk regularly about uh, what I have called in my work the Internet of Landlords, right? The kind of the, this top layer of rentier capitalist, the platforms who are, you know, kind of dominate our perception and our interactions and usage of the Internet, right? Like the Internet right now for most people is just a series of like five websites that they go to all owned by the same like two companies, right? And so, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the way that rentier capitalism in a very kind of old school way is one of the dominant modes of political economy uh, in contemporary capitalism, digital capitalism, technological capitalism. But there's another layer to that. There's a there's an inversion to the Internet of Landlords, if you will, um, that we haven't spent anywhere near enough time talking about. And we've got the the one man who can do the job here uh, to introduce us to the, the big wide world of not the Internet of Landlords, but the landlords of the Internet. Uh, and so it's returning champion Dan Green here to talk about uh, his brand new and brilliant, interesting uh, article in Social Studies of Science, the journal um, called Landlords of the Internet, Big Data and Big Real Estate. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming back on. Thanks so much, guys. Really happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here because this is an article that has been in the works uh, for you for a very long time. I've known about this article. I've known you've been working on it. We've had discussions about it for going back years. And actually, we were kind of conceptualizing our our articles, yours on the landlords of the internet and mine on the internet of landlords, uh, in this really nice, like Tesla Edison moment of, uh, of Kismet, where we were like simultaneously conceptualizing these different rentier analyses of the internet at different layers of the stack, if you will. Um, and then like talking about our, what we were currently thinking about and realizing that we were doing a, a very nice dialectic here. Um, you know, not a total thesis antithesis but a really nice uh, kind of inversion of uh, analyzing different levels of the same thing. And so I'm, I, I, I have been on the lookout for this article for um, a long time. And so I'm, I'm really pleased uh, to see it out and to be able to, to get really in-depth into it. Thanks, man. This has been a real passion project on my part, both because I, you know, I, I encountered it in a really weird way. That was one of those things that you just kind of have to write about it once you have that experience. Um, the, the work took a really long time. I just didn't know how to, frankly, read financial statements before I began this project. Um, and you know, you know how it is. Things get side um, sidelined. So I'm really excited it's out there. I'm excited it's getting picked up. Um, and it's I'm really excited to talk with you guys about it because I think they're your kind of like neo Luddit perspective is exactly what we need to talk about the real kind of bones of the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to get get into the bones of the internet and and in the mean and and while doing so, I think kind of smash a few misconceptions of how the internet is run, you know, uh and and who's running it um at these different levels. In fact, you you have a really great paragraph uh in the introduction of the article that kind of lays out what your your two overarching interventions in this article and I think that will really do well in setting 
the the tone for what we're going to be getting a much deeper into as as we talk about this. So I'll just quote from you where you say, uh, I make two overarching interventions. First, empirically, the world-spanning technological stack we call the internet is a haphazard assembly of different economic and social interests, sometimes competing, sometimes collaborating. At its base are not the software developers of Google or Facebook, but landlords, some of the largest, most powerful ones in the world. Second, theoretically, this history advances STS or science and technology studies research on financialization by demonstrating how real estate capital shapes not just the concrete form of contemporary infrastructure development, but the abstract logic guiding its growth and maintenance or stagnation and destruction. We build our networks and tunnels, but we do not build them as we please. We do not build them under self-selected circumstances, but through the asset classes, tax laws, and dead malls given and transmitted from the past. I, I, I love that that uh, reference to Marx, of course, the 18th brew mayor of, uh, of Napoleon, um, but I, I think that's, that's exactly it. Like, you know, it, it, we've been talking more and more about prop tech on TMK because it really is this thing that like, you know, real estate rules everything around me, whether you know it or not is, is ultimately, you know, I, I think a big lesson of this article that like, um, you know, the, the kind of the data centers and we'll get into this typology of, you know, uh, the, the, different co-location, the internet exchange points, the data servers, all of these different buildings that house the internet um, are owned predominantly by what have become these big giant real estate investment trusts. And we'll kind of trace that history of that development because they didn't all start as these REITs or real estate investment trusts, but they developed into such things. But um, maybe let's actually, let's start near the beginning of how you got into this topic though. You mentioned that this is one of those things that like you came across it like you know, five or six years ago and, and couldn't put it down, couldn't put down the subject. So what, how did you get into kind of picking through the bones of the internet? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So in the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, there was like a, a minor vogue of, you know, both academic and artistic work showing that like the internet is real stuff. You know, Andrew Bloom had this, this really nice book tubes that, um, begins with him, uh, basically saying like, you know, a squirrel bit my cable outside. And that's how I discovered that the internet was a thing. Um, and not just, you know, beams of energy coming into my home. Uh, and I, I had a, a kind of a, a similar experience, um, you know, I, I had been to data centers before I had visited them, um, you know, for, you know, for field trips or for education or just cause I'm a dork. Um, but this was the first time in 2016 that I really got to talk to the money. And that was uh, a revelation, not because of any, um, secrets that I heard, but because it was just a different kind of money that I was expecting. So, uh, summer 2016, um, I'm a postdoc, I'm working in a corporate research lab in Boston. Um, we have a bunch of summer interns. We're trying to figure out a cool activity to do at the end of the summer. We're reading, um, Nicole Staryleski's excellent book, Undersea Networks, um, which is about trans, the history of trans Pacific cables. And, and I said, all right, 
I think I can talk my way into a data center and we'll show people, we'll go visit the internet. Um, and, you know, because I was working at Microsoft at the time, um, having the, uh, you know, whatever my email address was, dangreen at microsoft.com carried a, a bit of a different um, connotation for the guy reading my email than if it was, you know, just Dan at Gmail. Uh, because, you know, I think they really thought I was looking for business when I was asking to come visit, like I was trying to kick the tires on the car. And and no matter how much I explained, like, no, I'm, I'm from the money losing wing of the company. I'm, I'm not, you know, there's no, no one lets me actually sign a check. Like that is not something that's going to, it's going to happen here. Um, we still ended up getting the tour by the CEO of the company. So um, I'm in, I'm in Boston, you know, we take the subway, sorry, the T down, um, downtown where there's a gorgeous Macy's on one summer street. Um, but, uh, Macy's only occupies the bottom four floors of the building and the four floors above that house the, a firm called Markley that owns the building. It is not Macy's building. Macy's is their tenant. Uh, and the other tenant besides Macy's is the internet. So Markley, um, at this internet exchange point, um, has clients that range from, uh, you know, kind of backbone telecom firms like CenturyLink that you might not have heard of unless you're in that business, um, to big, you know, corporate clients, um, like, like Netflix or Uber, um, to hospitals, to utilities, to governments, everybody was renting space from them. Um, that exchange point was where transatlantic cable, uh, kind of landed in new England, uh, it was the place where these big backbone carriers, you know, the people that Comcast or Verizon rent space from, um, where they uh, interconnected and shared traffic with each other. Um, because it's so close to like the main line of traffic in New England, it's a place where um, interlinking speeds are super fast. So these are places where tenants like Uber or and Google would rent space and then connect to each other. Um that was, you know, it was a really, it was prime real estate, just like prime shopping real estate, but probably worth much, much, much more than the Macy's beneath it. Um, Markley was a relatively small player in the game. Um, their market cap, I don't think exceeded a billion dollars, although it's hard to tell because they're a private company. And they only really had two sites, uh, which they had uh, acquired after they were already built. Markley himself, um, you know, when he sat down with us in the conference room, just said, hey, I'm Jeff. Uh didn't look like an engineer. He looked like a, he was a Tony Soprano looking dude. And he had made his money in malls uh, in the eighties and nineties in California. Um, and then he realized as you know, as we'll get to uh, in a minute that there was a boom um, occurring in uh, co-location facilities for the early commercialized internet. So he bought places like, uh, I believe like an old Coors factory in Toronto um, and places like that and renovated it um, to uh, house co-location facilities and data centers. Um, and now focused his business on uh, these kind of boutique private services in new England. So small player in the game, but still an enormously rich dude. Uh, he had a Jeff Koons balloon dog displayed like uh, pretty near his desk, which is a you know an extremely expensive paperweight. Uh, there were uh, <laughs> the, the, the gaudiness of new money right there. Yes, very much so. 
Uh, yeah, and uh, Mark Lee, I mean, he's a lovely dude, and he's a pretty, you know, I mean, yes, he does, it is very new money. Um, he uh, is a renowned art collector. He had uh, commissioned these lovely portraits of every staff member in the building, as well as his King Charles Spaniel, Max, who kind of followed him around the building. Um, there was another uh, wall of uh, graffiti that he commissioned that he proudly showed us off that was... Um, if I have this right, it was like the Markley team as like Jedi and Amazon web services dressed up as stormtroopers. Um, so a little dig at his competition um, slash one of his biggest clients. That's one of the weird things about this sector is that you often end up <laughs> renting space to your competitors. Uh, and then, you know, he really just wanted to show us all his stuff and he was really proud of it. Uh, it was this like real <laughs> pride in these massive fixed capital projects that are like really familiar to anyone who's like maybe a civil engineer that like took place at a bridge or, you know, again, that kind of like new money property stuff that's showing off like anything from the strip mall that they bought to the new building that they have land on, you know, developers that are really, you know, excited to cut the ribbon on their new apartment project or something like that. You know, it's that, it's that kind of excitement. It's not, um, you know, Steve jobs or Tim cook showing you the new iPhone. It's a totally different class. Um, and so he, you know, took a lot of pride in showing off all the, you know, safety features that he had to protect, you know, what were essentially like, um, highly specialized, uh, real estate assets. So people were trusting them with their data and the links between um, their data and other people's data. And to uh, protect for that, you know, there were on the roof um, dozens of generators powered by diesel that are ready to go live at a moment's notice. If power goes out, um, there were uh, heat sensors in most of the data center rooms that would detect um, fire before there was smoke. So faster than a smoke alarm um, using lasers or something. Um, The goal being to like minimize the amount of stuff that would get uh, any water on it. uh, If you uh, had to put out a fire, there were protections against floods, uh, protection against lightning. We, someone asked a question about earthquakes and he says, you know, it's, it's rated, but we didn't go that far because we're not in California. Um, but it was clearly, you know, something that was on their mind when they're building these kinds of places. Um, and you know, we just had so much pride in that place that I, I just, I had to really figure out like, wow, did this dude come to run the internet for the Northeast United States? Um, and you know, much to my surprise, like it was, you know, it was pretty much everyone else was like him, um, or, you know, an even bigger version of him. Like he was a relatively small fish in the game. Uh, and the other folks are leading, um, frankly, some of the biggest, most profitable real estate firms in the world. Uh, and they're not, uh, working for Facebook or Google, Facebook or Google are renting space from them. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is another one of the things that it's going to be really interesting as we as we trace through h- how this system works is that it is you know like like turtles all the way down. It's it's uh, real estate and rentiers all the way down, right? Like you know the the rentier platforms, you know the Internet of Landlords are themselves renting space from these uh, 
uh, internet landlords, um, you know, as, as you call them. And it's, it's the people like Jeff Markley, very interesting. And I think, um, I'm definitely interested to hear more about the, uh, <laughs> the freak beat of all these other real estate and private equity guys. Um, but as you mentioned, like relatively small fish in the, in this, in this big, vast, um, data ocean, uh, if we stick with the much vaunted data water metaphors. Um, and it's, it's actually like the really big groups are people that I've never heard of. And I'm sure none of our listeners, um, have ever heard of unless they work specifically within a tech company that has like is on the the cloud side of dealing directly with these companies right like it's it's equinix and digital realty like those are the two largest uh internet landlords in existence and and you know they have this what sounds like based on your research a kind of managed duopoly in terms of owning like the actual physical infrastructure, real estate, buildings, like the, the actual material capital that makes up, uh, the, the, the internet, you know, it's the, it's the really highly sophisticated as you just laid out with like, you know, Markley's, um, data server uh, or, you know, data server, you know, the really highly sophisticated, um, you know, environmental controls, uh, and, you know, that keep these things that running at peak optimal performance, keep them safe and secure. You know, there was, uh, uh, in our episode last week with Mel Hogan, we talked about how I believe it was Houston or maybe it was Dallas is one of those, uh, big Texas, uh, cities. It was one of those two that like, you know, during a massive hurricane, um, the data center became a kind of point of refuge, um, because it was the only place around that still had power. Uh, it was safe and secure. Uh, you know, there, there were showers there. There was, you know, uh, places for people to sleep, you know, because these things are kind of created as these fortresses, right? Because that is ultimately one of the primary services, uh, the essential services that these real estate um, companies are providing is the assurances that uh, that the internet will never go down, right? That like, you know, it, in the event of some kind of apocalyptic catastrophe, um, the internet will still be the, will still be running. And it, it, it you know, in a way, it kind of harkens back to some of the original military uh, justifications about creating an internet that would still be able to exist as a communication network in the event of a post uh, nuclear holocaust. We don't have to worry about the Cold War becoming a hot war. Well, you know, we'll, we'll set that aside in terms of uh, <laughs> we don't have to worry about the old Soviet uh, Cold War becoming a hot war. Um, but the, it's not the nuclear uh, apocalypse that we have to worry about. It's maybe an even more severe apocalypse, which is uh, the interruption of the flow of uh, and circulation of capital, uh, which is where these kinds of uh, real estate companies, it sounds like, are really kind of on this frontline yet unseen uh, in the maintenance of this essential infrastructure. Yeah, Jathan, I really appreciate how you framed that uh, contemporary landlords as uh, kind of successors to the old military industrial internet that was concerned with um, surviving a nuclear war. Uh, and, and that's in part because, you know, I mean, one, they act similarly, but two, I, I think the story that I try to tell is one where the capitalist state is very, very invested uh, in real estate, uh, and not 
Yeah, you know, usually we think about real estate as a kind of parasitic, um, you know, lamprey on real productive industry. But uh, in Anne Halla, the late Finnish geographer who coined this term uh, property state, talked about real estate as a way of taking um, kind of immobile, uh, sunken, fixed assets, boring stuff, you know, and for most of the poor spore period, real estate was boring, you know, it was a guaranteed return, but a low one. Uh, And instead, the state sees that as a way to capitalize those assets and integrate them in the broader global economy. So real estate is the system that takes global capital and impresses it on space. You know, it is real estate is what gives us the capitalist environment that we walk through. For these landlords, the anonymity is a very important part of the project. Markley always said that he could put his name on the side of the building. He had every right to. It was his building. But he didn't want to because that's not what his tenants expected. His tenants expected secrecy and privacy, and that is part of the service. I'm not surprised that that um, story uh, that Mail told about people hiding out in a data center um, in, in Houston during the hurricane, I think that's, uh, you know, it's surprising that they knew where it was, you know, in part, they're trying to sell these like generic kind of office parks as, as something that no one would ever think to walk into. Um, but I remember going to another, um, data center in Northern Virginia, which is kind of the, maybe the global capital for the data center industry for weird historical reasons. Um, and a dude from Equinix, uh, much lower down the chain than Markley, more of a kind of car salesman, um, was telling me that, you know, proudly, Look, in the event of a terrorist attack, the feds are going to check on the Pentagon first. And then, you know, who they're going to check on next and who has two thumbs? This guy. Um, Because (laughs) that infrastructure is, like you say, just so essential to the global movement of capital. The tenants of the Internet landlords um, buy space. Like they're by a, a rack of servers or up to a whole room. But what they receive is time. Um, they get uptime. And all of these things from the, you know, the earthquake resistant walls to the the diesel that's ready to kick up at a moment's notice. Um, there was actually, there used to be a pretty serious conspiracy theory about uh, all the diesel in um, World Trade Center 7 because there was a, a, a data center there. Um, you know, all that stuff is there to guarantee that there is no lost time, that the tenants, no matter what, keep the keep the lights on, keep the, you know, the hospital data um, running, keep your call of duty match running, keep the bank info flowing, you know, keep my, you know, reruns of, of white Lotus or whatever going. Uh, it is all of this, you know, massive fixed capital investment is there to make sure that things run as smoothly as possible so that the internet is as invisible as possible. 
Yeah, I would, I would love to hear a bit more also about the historical reasons why Virginia ends up being a hub of uh, data centers. Because I think, you know, that, you know, we've talked a bit about the geog- some of the geographical constraints on where you can put data centers. And increasingly, there are these political concerns, you know. So one, I'd be interested, you know, why, you know, why is Virginia a hub, but also... Uh, to what extent does like the momentum of the history of putting data centers in a place override you know increasing paranoia about where to yeah. put them? Um, um, yeah, Ed, I'm gonna uh, run through a little bit about the kind of like the map of this industry as it grew up, and then um, you know please bug me if I don't uh, get to the the higher level points. So this industry really grew up to solve a problem. You know the by the late. 70s, early 80s, all of the different computer networks that would network together to make something like what we call the internet um, could talk to each other. They all spoke the same language, that's TCP IP, um, but they didn't have a place to physically connect. You know, at the end of the day, the networks can't talk to each other unless you're plugging one cable into another cable. So we needed places to house that. Who was going to run that was a relatively open question, although there were, uh, you know, I mean, the, the good money in the early 80s was that the commercialized Internet and everyone expected that what was then NSFNet would eventually be privatized because that was how things were done. Everyone expected that the keys would be handed over to uh, either Bell that got knocked out of the competition through uh, the antitrust and the breakup of Ma Bell. And then the runner-up would, of course, be IBM. You know, there was a, a very strong suspicion, um, and I get a lot of this history from a guy, a business historian named Shane Greenstein, that one of those companies would just be handed the internet. But, uh, you know, as, as it happened, uh, frankly, IBM didn't know how to run a good router. <laughs> and they actually got... Uh, beat out on NSFNet by uh, a couple of companies um, that joined together to provide, uh, you know, what we would now recognize as an internet exchange point. So an internet exchange point being where like different carriers of traffic would uh, plug into each other to make sure that, you know, I can send an email to you, even though uh, I subscribe to Comcast and you subscribe to AT&T. The, those network providers were small kind of nonprofits. They were called like Cynet, UUNet, and CFRNet. Um, built that first big internet exchange in DC in 91. It's in DC in part because uh, DC and especially Northern Virginia um, was historically home to a lot of the engineers who worked on early internet development, a lot of the defense contractors who were commissioning it, um, and a lot of data-rich industries. Um, so telecom, you know, this is where MCI comes from, health insurance, and of course, the feds. Um, so Paul Ceruzzi has a great book about um, called Internet Alley. It's really showing that while, you know, Silicon Valley is where we see a lot of like the new software firms coming out, you know, and have much uh, higher market cap. A lot of the infrastructure um, and the kind of bedrock foundation of the Internet is literally built in Washington, D.C. around uh, what we now call Tyson's Corner. Um, so that uh, leads to the first Internet exchange point that's over there in 91. It's just 
on the top floor of a garage as really just a big router that people are plugging cables into and out of um, that business model. They're kind of working at on the fly. They call it May East metropolitan area exchange East. Uh, the fact that they're calling it East hints that, yeah, we think we're going to run something bigger later. Um, but by 92, 93, fully half of the world's internet traffic is running through the top floor of this garage in Tyson's corner. That model works so well that it's then uh, required by the feds through Al Gore's 91 High Performance Computing Act. Uh, side note, this, this project really is just another part of my lifelong crusade to say that, yes, Al Gore really did invent the internet, not trolling <laughs> anyone. Like, we really do get our neoliberal rentier-focused internet from Al Gore, um, because he is the guy who saw himself as like, you know, his dad built the highways. Al was going to build the information superhighway, but as befits like an eighties and nineties liberal, he was going to do it in the, you know, smart, profitable business friendly way. Al Gore robbed yet again, Al Al Gore robbed yet Yet again, again. robbed of his election and robbed of the credit for creating, uh, the fucking internet, this thing we all hate and can't stop using. (laughs) And another like child that, you know, takes what their parent did and says, uh, what if I did a worse version of that? (laughs) What if I did a worse version and it covered the entire globe? Um, Right. So yeah. So Al is, is well, Freud uh, also doesn't get enough credit for uh, the the libidinal movement of global history. Just daddy issues <laughs> all the way down. <laughs> daddy issues all the way down. Um, so yeah. So he spends uh, or his bill spends like one and a half billion. Not a huge amount of money, but the the idea is that this is kind of a transition fund to take um, the what was then the NSF net, largely this research network used by nerds at universities mostly. Uh, Uh, to upgrade it and commercialize it. Uh, Some of this goes to funding like, you know, backbone upgrades or like new kind of um, internet service providers. But a lot of it goes to creating, you know, basically internet landlords. So they take that May East model that was sitting in that garage um, in Tyson's corner uh, and they make three more of those, these network access points. Uh, They build them in kind of, you know, local concentrations of real estate wealth. So New Jersey, right outside New York, San Francisco and Chicago. Um, and they're handed directly over to the big teleco firms like Sprint and Pacific Bell to operate them. And these are the places where inter, uh, the new internet companies are connecting and where they're uh, crossing traffic between each other. But as the network gets bigger and bigger, they start running into you know, basically overcrowding issues, like the same thing that would happen with, uh, you know, a big ass apartment building or developing a new section of a city or something like that. And they need to figure out a new way of running it. So these network access points that, um, you know, Gore handed over to this new generation of landlords really just had like basically one big router that everybody else connected to. And your charges were based on your traffic. You know, you use more, you pay more. This meant that, uh, the networks themselves were kind of eventually running out of space 
to literally put their wires. New players um, couldn't pay the rates that were set by the big boys. Um, and everybody was upset that there was one person holding one choke point for the entire internet. So then another model came out in Palo Alto, uh, which, you know, we're more kind of, I don't know, familiar with as a, as a site of internet economy um, build out. And these guys were engineers, Jay Adelson and Brian Reed. Um, and they said that their model would be pretty much a pure real estate play. So they would just be landlords that housed clients' assets, you know, their servers. Um, they would make sure that the power was on. They would make sure that things didn't get too hot. Um, but they would not charge a fee um, based on how much traffic you were using. They would only charge a fee for space, and it was up to the tenants to connect to each other if they wanted to share that traffic. They This was the Palo Alto Internet Exchange, or PAKES, PAX, I don't know how they pronounced it. Um, like a lot of these things, they were in old telephone switching offices. Um, this is why we call these spaces carrier hotels, because they were where the old phone carriers used to, interconnect, um, used to connect. Uh, and their office was right where a lot of the Pacific Cable was coming on board. This new model became uh, so popular and so profitable that pretty much everyone ended up adopting it. Um, this firm later becomes Equinix, who Wall Street Journal calls the uh, internet's biggest landlord. And this, their success, especially in the U.S., is probably one of the reasons um, that we don't have uh, state-owned or foundation-owned or you know not-for-profit data centers, not-for-profit internet connections, um, because Equinix took off in the U.S. much faster than it did elsewhere, and. In other parts of the world, there are different models. You know, there are um, some state-owned data centers um, or uh, internet exchanges. There are others run by like a consortium of nonprofits or something like that. But the Equinix landlord model was so successful here that it really crunched, um, squashed the competition. Uh, and with that fuel, Equinix and their competitor, Digital Realty, have now been able to expand across the whole globe. Yeah, and the and and this definitely links up as well to what you were talking about with the you know economic geographer and Hila's work around the property state and similar work that you that you cite by uh oh, what's 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 his name Stein is his last Sam Stein on the real estate state um his really great book that also kind of expands that and updates some of that analysis that you know. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that the the United States has never met a private equity firm or a real estate developer that it did not love and then bend over backwards to provide constant support and assurances that the market will only ever grow and go up, uh, you know. And, 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 uh, you know, the U.S. is not alone in this. Australia, the U.K., like, you know, these kind of uh, stalwarts of you know, Western capitalism, uh, you know, whether it's the imperial core or the client states of the imperial core, um, for them, like, you know, real estate is, uh, and, and property, uh, is a, a, a primary foundational thing. So it's really no surprise the internet, at, you know, already recognized, uh, you know, as this new frontier for, um, commercial activity and capital accumulation. 
the the maintenance uh, and creation of it would be handed over to um, the kind of you know first past the post uh, real estate developers who are able to get in there early, like Equinex or like Digital Realty, um, get in there early, establish their foothold. Importantly, and we can talk about this kind of weather. The dot com bust, uh, you know, in the in the 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 nineties and and two uh, thousands, with the help, of course, of private equity coming in and doing what they do very well, which is, you know, after a big bubble explodes um, and there's a lot of uh, undervalued uh, assets just laying around because no one else has money to buy them up or support them, private equity comes in like a vulture uh, and picks over the carcass. Uh, and that is exactly what happened with a lot of these data servers uh, and other cloud infrastructure um, or, or uh, early kind of you know, predecessors of the cloud as we understand it now. Like, you know, the, the, the boom, the bust of the dot-com bubble really, uh, in, in your telling, made a bit, had a big kind of transition in terms of letting private equity come in en masse, um, take over ownership, but also through that contribute to vast concentration and consolidation of the kind of ownership of these uh, uh, big data centers and this kind of, you know, as I mentioned before, what you kind of outline as what sounds to me like a, a kind of managed duopoly um, between Equinex and Digital Realty with private equity kind of, you know, propping up both of them uh, beneath the surface. Yeah, it's an interesting, I, I like that um, that label, they're a managed duopoly, and in part because you know, they are and they aren't direct competitors. Um, so, so one of the things that, that comes out of the 90s is... Uh, you know, this explosion in like different business models to support uh, different kinds of, you know, economic activity on the internet. Um, And so the pipe ends up getting run by three-ish kinds of businesses. And I'm going to put aside here um, the actual question of like cable and who owns the cable that runs along the bottom of the internet. Um, I'm more concerned here about the the houses, the physical assets that are on land. And there's really three types of those. So first we have these internet exchange points, which are where the usually around major cable landings, coastal areas, um, places where you need to uh, connect local and international networks. these are often in, uh, you know, in places that aren't the U.S. Run as kind of a co-op or a, a state firm, um, but in the U.S. they are usually owned by a specific landlord and then have other services built on top of them. Uh, one of those services, uh, the one that Equinix pioneered, is uh, called a carrier hotel or co-location facility, usually colo for short. Um, these are places where private firms um, connect their own networks and their own data. So less about um, transmitting traffic from uh, Europe to Asia, more about connecting the networks of like Uber to Google. And those places um, have mostly taken on this kind of Equinix business model of uh, you pay a flat fee for your space. Maybe you have some extra security stuff on top of that. And then you can decide who you want to connect with in that place. Um, This works a lot like malls, frankly, where you get one or two anchor tenants, you know, your, your Macy's and your Sears, and those take up a ton of space. And then smaller businesses want to be next to those hot uh, tenants. You know, this is back when malls existed. And 
you know, in a uh, colo facility, those anchor tenants would be someone like a Google or an Apple or something like that, that all of the smaller fish want to be able to connect with in a given space. And then the final uh, player highest up the stack is uh, data centers. And this is kind of like a catch-all term that I'm using to just describe any place that is uh, storing people's assets and saving them rather than offering the opportunity to cross-connect. Um, these are not mutually exclusive categories. Many people do the same thing. Um, but data centers, um, there was, you know, there was need for them in the 90s, but this is the sector that's really exploded uh, since really since Google's IPO in 2004. And Digital Realty, Equinix's biggest competitor, but also one of their biggest tenants, uh, is a mainly a data center operator. So they're mostly um, you know, saving other people's saved games on Call of Duty rather than helping you know, Activision connect to Google or whatever. Um, so these competitors are also supporting each other in the market. They're also claiming different sides of the market. And they're often doing the same that thing all in one building. Uh, and that's the really crazy part. So there's all this uh, experimentation in the 90s as these different business models emerge. And then the crash happens in uh, 2000, 2001. The bubble bursts. And there is just a ton of these distressed assets lying around. You know, something you joke about something like pets.com um, and... You know, it, it is a joke, but at a certain point, pets.com needed to have some uh, somewhere to store their data, somewhere to connect into these major internet service providers. So once pets.com and all its peers die, all the space that we're using um, is suddenly useless. And more importantly, the space that people had built out in anticipation of pets.com, you know, growing exponentially forever and having a million other people growing exponentially forever, all that space that they had built out in anticipation of that, that is now worthless as well. Um, so you have, uh, people like, uh, there's just, you know, colo.com builds like 30 of these facilities across the U S they, you know, are instantly worthless, instantly vacant. They get sold for pennies on the dollar. Uh, and that happens all throughout the sector. You get like major financial analysts at this time saying that, you know, this is dead. We're never going to have 100% occupancy ever again. You know, this is like a nice thing, a little niche market that people might pick up if this internet thing continues to go. But this is not a major play. There are, however, people who think differently. Like you hinted at, they're mostly in private equity. Um, and I don't know if you guys have done the like, you know, guide to private equity before, but we... Uh, usually think of private equity as an investment firm where you get these kind of limited partners, which could be a wealthy person um, or a uh, big pot of money from something like a pension fund. So digital realty, largely a creature of like California teachers pensions. That was the biggest initial investor. Those limited partners invest into a portfolio that largely targets privately held companies rather than, or buys publicly held companies and takes them private. Um, and that's all managed by these general partners, the people who work at the firm. Um, and they take a portion of the success, any returns that they get, as well as, a, you know, a standard management fee. And private equity, like, I, I think came to a lot of people's eyes during the 2012 election, um, we're talking about Mitt Romney's past. And they have a, you know, a deserved reputation as kind of like vultures who buy up a place, you know, like Nabisco is one of the most notorious examples you know, fire everybody and sell off everything for the spare parts. 
Um, so they are very good at recognizing, you know, what they think are uh, undervalued assets um, or overvalued assets that could be stripped and sold out. And private equity through firms like, uh, especially Carlisle, uh, starts buying up these vacant data centers left and right for pennies on the dollar. And they're like, you know, this internet thing is coming back. They see what's happening at Google in particular. And from those uh, purchases, you know, which are happening in like the very bottom of the bear market, um, they start concentrating the market much more. So things that were previously owned by 10 separate firms are now grouped under one management firm. Uh, things that were, uh, you know, distributed around the country are now under one single management structure. Even different companies that are nominally competitors to each other may be owned by the same private equity firm and have similar board members on them. So there's this kind of rotating carousel of private equity vampires that start sitting on the boards of every major, um, you know, data center firm, uh, every major um, cloud company, that kind of thing. And the, there are even some rich guys who get into this game who are, in fact, so wealthy that, speaking of the freak beat, um, that they can act as their own private equity firm. So one of the most successful guys in um, Northern Virginia during this period is a firm um, called DuPont Fabros. Um, the DuPont in this name is the DuPont that you would expect, you know, the heir to a you know, multi-billion dollar three century old chemical fortune. Um, before he got into real estate, he was most famous for his like classic car collection. That's how I finally like nailed down who this guy was, was looking through like, um, car show magazines. Um, (laughs) and, uh, he basically has the piggy bank to be able to act as his own private equity fund. And he starts buying up these distressed, um, data centers in Northern Virginia in 2001, 2002, 2003, um, builds a big enough company that he can eventually take it public in 2007. Uh, and then eventually sell it to, uh, one of his larger competitors. Um, I believe digital realty bought him. So private equity is this kind of, uh, force for capital at large to, group together these distressed assets under one common governance structure and bring them to market in a way that was much more coordinated, um, much more profitable, much more organized than before. Uh, and it really, I, I, we really would not have the internet landscape that we do today unless that private equity cash had gone into building the apartments, changing the landlords, and and training the landlords in how to run a profitable business. We, we have definitely talked about private equities movements in the prop tech market as well. And this kind of role of, you know, private equity, when they get in, when they buy into a market, like they have been, you know, in our discussions around like whether it's rental homes or kind of single family homes as this new asset class, like when they buy into a market, they, they have so much capital, um, and they, they act as these kind of market creators, right? Like they, they had, there's so much money there to be had in servicing 
the needs uh, of private equity, that it creates an entire ecosystem around servicing those needs. So in prop tech, we've talked about like, you know, like Desiree Fields work or Aaron McElroy's work on, you know, like the kind of automated property management platform, stuff like that. Much of which, much of which exists not to service the, the mom and pop landlord or even your like mid-sized metropolitan landlord who owns like, you know, a handful of investment properties, but to service the big private equity firms that, you know, own properties uh, across multiple continents, um, you know, with portfolios that are growing in the, you know, thousands of, uh, of size and, and, you know, need that help to uh, service an entire market. I bring this up because I think one thing that also happens when private equity gets into a market in the way that it did with uh, the kind of digital real estate or the data real estate is that it kind of professionalizes that market as well in a really important way. So it's no longer the kind of, you know, whether it's the new money guys like Jeff Markley kind of, you know, coming, you know, coming into it from being real estate guys, you know, and they, they buy in or they have a mall that they already own and they convert it to a data center or something like that. Or some of these like old money people like the DuPont, or you also talk about some like, you know, British Lord who's the, who's the heir to some real estate fortune that probably spans back to like the Victorian era or something like that. Right. And they, they kind of get into this market because it looks like an interesting way to diversify their portfolio. Right. Like I'm a real estate guy. Okay. You know, I come from a long history of real estate parasites. Uh, and so this looks like a new, a new, th uh, uh, thing for me to latch onto and suck a little blood out of. But when private equity gets into the game, they are in it to uh, make money uh, in ways that uh, other other industries do not make money, right? Like at scales of capital accumulation, like that, they're in it to win big, and and they have so much capital spread often across so many different assets. You know, their portfolios are massive. That, as I was saying, it kind of professionalizes the maintenance and management of this because they're also extremely uh, expert. They employ, you know, phalanxes of lawyers and accountants and engineers, you know, all these people that, you know, thinking about the work by people like Keen Birch on assetization, right? The kind of like, there is a whole process, uh, a whole scientific uh, process involved in this kind of assetization or the creation and valuation of assets. Um, that they, you know, and through that, uh, uh, one of the be one of the ways you continue to create and grow these assets is by uh, shielding them from the people that might want to take those assets away from you. The, you know, the 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 IRS or the the tax collector, uh, the government, uh, uh, you know, uh, policies that might um, undermine your position in the market. So you have a lot of lobbyists on staff as well. Um, these kinds of things. And so uh, in this kind of history of the development of the internet landlords that your article uh, beautifully traces, the wh where we are at now is this kind of like the post-professionalization by private equity of uh, these internet landlords. And that be, that becomes this kind of what you uh, nicely call reification uh, or the kind of uh, the, the, cre the creation of 
these internet landlords into real estate investment trust. Um, and this, on one hand, solidifies uh, a few things, and I'll, I'll let you get into the details, but I think it's, it's very interesting, not just in regards to like the, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, under, understanding the mechanics of capital. You know, if we put on our, our Marxist, our capital volume three hat, it's probably the most, uh, relevant here for thinking about, uh, REITs. But, you know, it's interesting to see these kind of new organizations come about as, uh, as ways to do what you said earlier, you know, uh, make real estate, uh, more, liquid, more investable, more mobile, um, but also more secure um, in terms of uh, the, you know, the government not only supporting it, but also not uh, hindering its growth. Um, You know, and I think that's, that's really interesting. Uh, But, you know, it's also the, 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 the kind of real estate investment trust as this like next stage or ultimate stage of the in the evolution of these uh internet landlords is also based on some uh interesting kind of metaphysical uh arguments around like the the notion of space and value about the internet as uh like you know in the eyes of uh the internal revenue service um literally a space uh that that you know is is uh, uh legible as a form of real estate which you know in a in a way uh finally living up to the dreams of John Perry Barlow and the uh the declaration of independence of cyberspace but uh in a way that uh is completely counter to um his libertarian anarchist leanings and instead uh uh f- finally fulfills the uh libertarian corporatist uh uh, uh power block yeah, I, I appreciate that intro. And I, I think, and, and thank you as well for mentioning both like Desi Fields, who was an uh, incredible help with this piece, and, and Keen Birch, who was a major influence. Um, one of my main goals in writing this was to, you know, really vanquish any idea that the internet had a pre capitalist, much less an anti capitalist life. Um, and that it was, you know, somehow perverted by the market, uh, or that somehow these, you know, libertarians snuck in the back door to take our precious internet and and transform it politically. You know, what I, what I'm trying to show by talking about the bones of the internet is that those bones were built for market, um, very deep down, but that does not uh, kind of eliminate the possibility as, as you explained, Jathan of, uh, you know, change in that form and how that exists over time. So the internet, uh, so it's not that the internet kind of had to make a dirty deal with finance in order to grow, you know, it was a regrettable compromise at the moment. Rather, the internet has been serving the needs of finance the entire time and even further than that, once we get to the, the 2010s, this moment of reedification that you're talking about, the internet is itself, at its bones, a financial product. You are able to invest in slices of internet infrastructure in Northern Virginia, in, in Equinix, even if you do not live there, because it is now a global financial security that circles the world as a REIT. So, what is a REIT? Um, turns out, 
that all of the major players in this sector, um, besides Equinix, are headquartered in my home state of Maryland in the mid-Atlantic U.S. And when I first saw that, I thought like, all right, well, that's weird. I mean, maybe it makes sense. They're close to D.C. They got a lobby um, or, you know, they're close to the data centers that they run in um, Virginia or, you know, maybe there's some weird historical reason uh, that they all, you know, I don't know, went to Johns Hopkins together. Who knows? Um, but it, it turns out that uh, all of these weird financial assets called REITs or real estate investment trusts um, are based in Maryland. Uh, the It's hard to tell because one company will often split itself into all these different subsidiaries, but somewhere between half to three quarters of REITs um, are headquartered in the U.S. So what's a REIT? A REIT is a basically a investment vehicle for um, real estate specifically, commercial real estate, uh, and it it works kind of like a mutual fund. So all of the assets in this one thing are of the same basic kind of asset class. It was initially a super boring investment that uh, I think the Eisenhower administration legislated into being after the war. And the goal was kind of like to fight urban decay and like to encourage these like small time landlords to invest into the city by giving them like really favorable investment returns. Um, so the REIT is a, is a really good deal. Um, and well, so, so what's their tax status basically? So in order to encourage small investors to kind of get involved in this, you get no federal income tax assessed on your dividends as long as you pay out 90% of them, as long as 75% of your assets are in real estate, and as long as 75% is your, of your income is rent from, quote, real property. Um, so you get to keep... Uh, the overwhelming amount of your dividends, no income tax, as long as you pay them out and you keep that money in real estate. Um, this was a pretty small market. Uh, so in 72, REITs only, were only worth in the US about $1.5 billion, not a lot of money. Um, but in 2016, they were worth $1.8 trillion, a thousand-fold increase. How did that happen? This is largely a process of the neoliberal state, um, the Reagan administration, and especially the Clinton administration, um, making real estate a sexier investment. Um, and in this way, I want to think about internet infrastructure as a, another kind of real estate asset, just like we talked about like collateralized um, debt obligations in the 2008 crisis. Um, so the High Performance Computing Act is then not just a uh, you know weird joke about Al Gore getting f- money to his nerd friends to make more internet. Rather, it's a real estate play. It's a giveaway of money to the real estate sector so that they can privatize what were previously public assets. And it existed at the same time as plenty of other real estate plays, like the um, the REIT Reform Act of 86, the Technical Miscellaneous Revenue Act of 98, and the REIT Modernization Act of 99. So all these things happen, and what they do is they mainly make it much, much easier for you to become a REIT, and they really lose in the definition of what counts as real property. So you can not just own these properties, but service them, and they don't have to just be housing anymore. So we have REITs these days that own billboards, um, that own self-storage facilities, um, that own hotels, that own nursing homes, that own forests, um, and of course, internet infrastructure. And that's, that's one of the biggest sectors. 
Well, uh, an interesting one in that list as well is private prisons. Yes. A lot of private prisons are owned by these real estate investment trusts. So you can, you know, you can invest directly in a REIT that owns private prisons, uh, and, and get some dividends from the, uh, the carceral state to add to your portfolio of investments. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's a weird thing to think about because it's not as though you're investing directly in the prison operator, something like GEO group, you're investing in a slate of prison real estate that is supposed to work the same way as like a slate of apartment buildings, you know, small regular returns because we're keeping all the rooms full. So it is the, the corporatization of prisons, but it's done in this kind of different route through space. Uh, and that is the, the route that most of these internet landlords went through. Yeah. And I also just want to say real, real quick on that. And, and, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why the REITs grew so quickly, um, and also just the kind of the, the muddiness of finance or the muddiness of finance here, uh, is that, uh, REITs are extremely attractive, as you mentioned, uh, extremely attractive for like pension funds or superannuation funds. Um, so these, you know, so a lot of people's retirements, they, often don't know it because these are active managed uh, investment funds that you don't really um, have any say uh, in a granular level about how they're invested, nor do most people really care or have any knowledge of. But, you know, for the most part, like, you know, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, for example, which, you know, I only bring up because we found out they had like $300 million invested in FTX, uh, you know, but yeah. may also have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in a REIT, which with Within that slice, uh, uh, or within that kind of mutual fund of the of the REIT, could be uh, nursing homes, could be uh, internet, uh, you know, real estate, could be private prisons, could be all of these, all of these things. And uh, you know, I, I all I, I bring this up as well to talk about like this is part of that not only the professionalization of the markets that private equity does, but the, uh, the deep entanglements of the market. You know, if, if, you know, a lot of private equity is diversified and invested across a lot of the, the market. And so it's within their interest to create um, highly entangled markets that uh, people on one hand don't know that they're investing across the whole market, whether it's in a REIT or whether it's in an index fund or something like that. But also what that means is that the, the fate of one slice of the market is tied uh, to the fate of all the other slices of the market. So uh, in order to keep, so I think this creates a lot of incentives to cr uh, cre keep the market as such constantly stable and healthy and moving upward. Even though we're in the middle, like of all these asset bubbles at each levels of the stack and this, inf right, at the infrastructure level, or by treating it like financialized assets to trade, and the tech giants themselves and the advertising um, models they rely on for their revenue, like all of this is an inter deeply interconnected. There's like a driving force, a political economy that sustains all of it, but uh, all of them are. Uh, 
precarious at the least, or, right? Yeah, I, I appreciate that Ed, because I think yeah, and their dividends are not really enjoyed by uh, the norm, like normal consumers either. So like the 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 market can be like growing rapidly um, and at good pace, even while the public is uh, like suppressed in its wages and and living conditions because these things have become like so separated from each other. Um, and and you know to tie it back to the to the internet landlords, like the reification of this internet landlords um, is also that like, I think it, you know, it's a recognition that this is a, a really crucial and essential um, kind of sector of the economy at large. And thus it needs to be brought into the core, the, the kind of financial imperial core of, of the uh, capitalist economy. Yeah. Fundamentally, what REITs do is solve the kind of like local knowledge problem in real estate. So, you know, real estate is an asset that's on land, right? An asset is something that you don't buy the whole of, but, you know, you rent a piece of or or take, um, you know, get charged for some usage of it rather than taking the whole thing. Um, So the copyright of a song versus the song itself. But for real estate, especially because it's stuck in place, you always really needed some kind of like local eye on the ground to know whether or not it was a good investment. You know, what was the neighborhood like? What are the utilities like? You know, can you cut a good deal with the guys next door? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so it was a local business. Investment was also fairly local. You know, even if uh, you might have like a group of uh, apartment buildings that you own, but you're still, you know, in the same state, if not the same country. REITs, by packaging these properties together as a financial instrument that is, you know, listed on the stock exchange, um, you are able to get investment from anywhere into the world into the most boring, predictable asset. And, and that's what I mean, you know, drawing on Ann Holla by, by talking about these things as the, the in, like you were saying, Jason, the, the integration into the global economy. So, you know, we usually think of the internet's role in the global economy purely as transmission, as sending these messages around. But in order for that to happen, you need to uh, invest enough in the infrastructure that it can send those messages in the first place. And that only happens when you can get, uh, you know, investors in Hong Kong who want to buy a slice of real estate in San Francisco um, or, you know, investors in Northern Virginia that are buying slices of data centers in Columbia that, uh, REITs really bring this to market and move it across the globe, even as the asset itself, those like, you know, concrete bunkers are firmly stuck in place. And so while, you know, everyday internet users are not seeing dividends from these products in terms of like your financial dividends, you know, I'm not getting a payout from Equinix just because like, you know, this podcast recording is being stored in an Equinix property. But I am able to do this podcast because it is stored in an Equinix property. You know, like that's what I mean by that the Internet may serve these landlords as much as the landlords serve the Internet. Um, And that's that's the note that I kind of end this article on is, is by talking about how, you know, we usually think of finance as this kind of parasitic thing that is holding back real innovation. But what if it's the other way around? You know, what if everything is just in service to 
Carlisle or just in service to these private equity ghouls? What if that's the whole reason that we're growing this economy? And it's not this um, relationship where, ah, you know, you got to, you got to pay the toll now and then you got to give something out. If it is full, if the internet is fully capitalist to the core, um, then I think we really need to take seriously that all of our user experiences may just be like, a line in a spreadsheet that is equivalent to like a cage in a server somewhere that someone is renting out from Equinix that Equinix is selling to investors on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, it's, it's so interesting and it's like, it's, uh, it's taking it like another level, like the man behind the man behind the man behind the throne, you know, kind of thing where like, it makes me think I was just, I was uh, talking to a producer for an ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, a, a radio program where they were um, interviewing me for a, a, a program that the, they're, they're running about like internet and advertising. So I was telling, you know, I was talking about the role of advertising in the internet and, and essentially saying something very similar as you just said, that's like advertising is not just like a layer on top of the internet that we all deal with. The internet exists for advertising, right? Like every uh, every, every aspect of our, our user uh, interaction, website design, you know, business model, uh, infrastructure operation, technological innovation, like all of those things are, if not uh, greatly and primarily influenced by the values of advertising and advertising revenue, then they exist solely in the service of uh, advertising and advertising revenue. You're, you've just laid out, I think, very convincingly as well that the, that we could even push it back a, a further that like that's that top level of the, of the internet stack, right? That's the internet of landlords. Um, if we push it down uh, even further, you know, further down the, the kind of the, the political economy to the, the, the landlords of the internet, then I, I think we could convincingly say that like, you know, all of those things are also in the service of and exist at the behest of uh, real estate investment trust. This is a, a nice segue because I wanted to really emphasize a, a point that you also kind of in the uh, article talking about, which is this direct comparison between uh, big tech's ownership and operation of cloud infrastructure and these real estate investment trust um, ownership and operation of, uh, of cloud infrastructure. And uh, it, it's, it's not even like a comparison, right? Like, you know, in our mind, it is the, it is the success of the intentional invisibility of uh, the, the Equinix and the digital realty and the Markleys and all that, that, you know, cause they don't want people to know where the bone, where, where the bones are of the internet, where the pipes are of the internet, um, in part because like that anonymity is, uh, a service they provide in part because like for security reasons, especially like post 9-11, um, right? Like these are sites of potential terrorist attacks or, you know, some, maybe somebody read 
how to blow up a pipeline. And then they read Ed's Twitter feed and they were just like putting one and two together <laughs> and coming up with three, which is uh, how to blow up a data pipeline. And, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even, even uh, Ed's FBI file has to be stored somewhere eventually. <laughs> right. Somewhere in Northern Virginia. We'll get it out. Uh, in an Equinix uh, facility. <laughs> but because of that, like big tech gets all the headlines around like their data centers and stuff. I want to actually just uh, quote um, uh, from from near the end of your article, um, a paragraph here that I think lays out this comparison in real uh, stark relief where you say, quote, uh, the bottom stack, uh, the bottom of the stack is run by landlords, not software developers, and will be for the foreseeable future. Landlords' current advantages against big tech can be roughly measured in two ways, their physical footprint and the reach of their network. At the end of 2019, Google had 19 data center facilities, 11 in the U.S., 5 in Europe, 2 in Asia, 1 in South America. In comparison... Digital Realty had 225 data center facilities, 147 in the U.S., 3 in Canada, 41 in Europe, 19 in Latin America, 10 in Asia, 5 in Australia, totaling 36.6 million rentable square feet. Even if every Google data center is among the world's largest, totaling more than a million square feet, they still would not touch the square footage of Digital Realty, who, while the world's largest data center operator, is but one landlord. What about the breadth of their networks? We can approximate this by the number of network connections. Equinix, the world's leader in private peering, although again, just one landlord profiting from co-location, is perhaps the best comparison, the better comparison here. In July 2020, according to industry tracker PeeringDB, Google had 231 public peering points and 121 private peering points spread across the world in various landlords' facilities. At Equinix's Ashburn, Virginia exchange alone, there are 282 peers. So, I mean, those numbers don't, don't, don't lie, right? Like the, they, they blow the landlords, these real estate investment trusts, these internet landlords blow big tech out of the water in terms of like the ownership and operation of data centers, both in terms of the, the physical footprint, uh, footprint you know space and uh you know server cages but also the 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 reach of the networking and in fact uh, you know what is the case you know talk about the kind of its rentiers all the way down is that a lot of these the the big tech uh um companies are often the main or major tenant of a of uh, uh, of one of these landlords, but they're still renting space from that land from that internet landlord. They might be buying, you know, like Google or Amazon, Facebook uh, might be creating their own purpose built data centers that they own and operate and control. But in a sense, uh, that's only servicing part of their needs. They're still renting vast majorities of their own uh, data centers in terms of uh, you know physical space and networking um, from these these internet landlords. Yeah, man. The um, this was another motivation of the piece was uh, you know I really wanted to disaggregate what we think of as big tech. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's 
not to our advantage as as critics, as thinkers, to assume that, you know, just because it's on a computer, everyone is playing the same game. You know, some Apple is a luxury phone company. Uh, Facebook is an advertising company. Um, Amazon is a logistics company. You know, they all like have similar sets of investors that started them out early. They compete for the same kind of uh, coding talent, but they, they offer different products. And I, I think that's made really clear by talking about like the physical example of like who owns the pipe. Um, and again, you know, it turns out it's not the software development nerds. It's a different set of engineering and real estate nerds. So over the course of the, you know, the kind of the post-recession period of the late 2000s and then the 2010s, this market really concentrated so that we saw both fewer landlords, you know, they largely started acquiring each other to get to this managed duopoly that we've been talking about. Um, And those acquisitions kind of have to happen in this game in order for your company to expand because we ain't making more land, right? Um, And so in order to claim a piece of a market, um, digital realty, uh, well, to a lesser extent, Equinix especially, cannot just um, start building you know, a new landing site for cable and expect everyone to come there. They need to acquire a smaller competitor. And often what you have in especially um, you know, less developed countries is having like a small regional competitor that owns a particular market in like a whole country or a particular region. Um, and in this period in Europe, Latin America, Asia, Australia, and Africa to a lesser extent, um, the um, these real estate investment trusts are buying up local competition, expanding out, and occasionally buying uh, competition that offers a different set of services. So like digital realty will buy Telex, who offers co-location services. Equinix will buy some data center players, kind of diversify their portfolio. Um, at the same time, that the kind of supply of data centers and uh, colo facilities is consolidating, the demand is consolidating too, because we get the rise of these giant software firms: your, you know, your Amazon, your Facebooks, your Googles, and they, you know, they totally run the stock exchange. Right? These are the biggest market caps we've ever seen. Um, these are extraordinarily important financial institutions. Um, so we. You know, I think reading the headlines, we tend to expect that these guys then run the the internet and really run the whole economy. But those, uh, you know, financial fictions of market cap, which have come crashing down to earth recently, I think like, you know, Domino's growth is outpacing Facebook's now, sorry, Meta's, um, that is really based in something that's not entirely the assets they own, the total employees that they have. It's something else. Just because these are trillion-dollar companies doesn't mean they're the most powerful, important companies in the world because they have to rely on someone else to house their stuff. So there is a lot of um, hullabaloo in the kind of like business press in the 2010s that was really worried about Apple or Facebook or whoever making the landlords obsolete. They all mentioned this in all their financial disclosures. They were all super worried about it. Equinix was less worried because they relied on co-location for their primary sales. Like they're mostly um, helping clients hook up with each other rather than storing assets. And that's not something that a Facebook can offer, um, in part because no one would trust Facebook to do it. Uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
they were all mentioning this in their financial statements, all the bond agencies, everyone was kind of worried about this. And there is a building boom that starts, you know, Apple does start building its own data centers, Facebook and Google, Google especially starts building their own data centers. This is important for them. They need to house their own assets, especially the things that are like most say mission critical and secure, the things that they absolutely don't want to let anybody else touch. But they're starting from a much lower base, and at the end of the day, they're just serving themselves. So while these firms have grown enormous and they're taking up, um, you know, a wider and wider chunk of landlord space, you know, to the point where they can often dictate how the space gets built. These are called like hyperscale customers in the industry, um, and they can make requests about what kind of air conditioning is there, what kind of electricity they have. At the end of the day, these landlords are maybe like better thought of as unregulated utilities. It's mostly what they're doing is providing water and electricity. Um, Tech giants are getting bigger and they're building their own space, but they're starting from a much, much lower spot. So uh, there was a flurry of books and articles. Um, Matthew Hindman is the guy I'm mostly responding to here, but he's not, he's not unique in this regard um, that are saying that, you know, this, uh, these tech giants are running the stack. They're owning the world. They own everything from, um, you know, the internet activity that, by which you communicate with grandma to the very bottom of the world and those concrete bunkers in which that conversation with grandma is stored. But, you know, in order for something like that conversation with grandma to happen, there has to be a bunch of other economic actors involved. There has to be the advertisers that want to make that a profitable thing in the first place. There has to be the data brokers that connect the advertiser to Facebook. Um, and there has to be someone to store that conversation. And it turns out, you know, shock that like, it's not software developers like main skill to run a real estate operation. So at the end of the day, like you said, the numbers don't lie. Most of the data center space and all of the colo space is owned not by these giant software developer firms, but by landlords, by guys like Markley who also own malls, um, who see their competition not so much as, as Facebook or Google. You know, they're a threat, but they're not the competition. When you read the investor decks, the competition is the people who own the nursing homes, the people who own the storage facilities, the people who own the private prisons. That's the competition for these cloud empires, not Facebook, not Amazon. I, I think that's a really interesting point because it also shows a, a kind of a, a downside of a particular analytical lens where uh, there's a lot of people uh, who study tech, the tech sector and they get interested in things because there's a tech angle to it. And I'm also I'm thinking in particular, I mean, we're talking about real estate here, but I also have a project with some uh, colleagues in, in Melbourne where we're looking at the logistical and warehouse sector um, and labor and technology in that sector. And I think we see something very similar where like people start studying the logistics and warehousing sector because of Amazon. Um, but that means that their, all, their whole framing of that sector is through the frame of Amazon, right? Like, um, and not through the frame of like understanding it as a much larger, uh, uh, wider, broader, uh, with longer history um, sector that uh, transcends Amazon, existed before Amazon, and will exist after Amazon, right? Um, and then I, I think there's something very similar that happens here around like data centers and stuff like that. Like, you know, people are like, you know, we want to have a materialist analysis of the cloud. So that means we have to look at data centers. Where does the, where does that conversation with grandma go and where is it stored? Um, and, 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 and all of that. But then they, 
they look at it because what brought them to this sector was technology. They look at it through big tech, right? Um, and then, uh, I think we see this constantly uh, where, you know, the tech angle makes it interesting, but then it also becomes the framing that we can't like escape out of when we want to analyze it. And, and I think as analysts, we have to really work hard to break out of that by contextualizing, broadening and deepening our horizons of analysis of, of whatever. What is the thing that we're interested in, right? Like, is it really tech as such or is it something else that tech represents? And if that's the case, then what is that thing? And, and, you know, I bring this up as a way to say that, like, you know, I appreciate this kind of work that you're doing here. And I, I think it's part of the TMK ethos as well is that one reason why we cast such a wide net uh, even though we are a podcast about the political economy of technology, we spend so much time talking about the mechanics of finance and real estate and insurance. Uh, and, you know, we, we've talked about agri the agriculture sector, right? Like, you know, we spend a lot of time doing deep dives into things that it's like, what does this have to do with technology? It's ultimately, well, it has, a, has everything to do with technology because some of the biggest tech companies are not, uh, tech companies, right? In, in other words, some of the biggest companies that have the most material and fundamental uh, uh, impact or market cap or whatever in the tech sector and the development of innovation and so on are companies that for them... That's just another market they're in, right? Like they're a real estate investment trust that's diversified their portfolio by owning a lot of data centers. Um, you know, uh, it, it's that kind of thing. And so, uh, in other words, like, you know, it, it's, it's also the story of how capitalism continues to become very complex and filled with intermediaries, right? Like every single market is not an exchange in a bazaar between a buyer and a seller. It's an exchange um, that is mediated by uh, a lot of highly specialized companies and industries and investors who take over one aspect of uh, an exchange that has multiple layers and processes involved in it. Like all of this stuff is a, is constantly a movement, but it's not a movement between two parties. Uh, it's a movement between a lot of other people, uh, many of whom may not even uh, realize that they uh, are, are being centered in some analysis of tech because they're like, we're not a tech company, we're a real estate company, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, I'm a Marxist because first, I think historical materialism tells you like, you know, what to hit in order to win, like where the pressure is supposed to go. Like what are the, you know, there's a reason the, we went after, you know, car factories instead of piano factories in the thirties. Um, but I, I think Marxism also helps us think about like, you know, what is the structure of the machine that is before us and what of it can be taken and what of it, um, needs to be thrown away as we start over again. Um, so another important inspiration for this piece, um, was uh, the work of Jasper Burns, the Endnotes Collective, uh, which I, I know you guys have discussed on here. And, and Jasper has this really um, lovely uh, essay called uh, Counter Logistics and the Communist Prospect. And, you know, and which really takes seriously the idea of like, okay, let's say the revolution pops off tomorrow and we do win. What is salvageable here? You know? And 
So I, I think like in terms of, of what to hit, I, I'm impo- I'm interested in this article because if we only approach data centers as a tech problem, that means that we have tech solutions and um, tech alliances through it. You know, we, we get worried about like where all our secrets are kept um, or whether, you know, we're being charged too much. And that, you know, leads to a certain set of alliances. But if we view it as a real estate problem that opens up other different alliances, you know, with um, so some of the biggest pushback um, on the West Coast against data center expansion has been in rural areas where, uh, you know, these places promise a ton of jobs. uh, They give out uh, mad tax credits to the, you know, um, because there's no other work there anymore. Uh, It turns out those jobs don't actually show up because once the thing is built, you just need a couple guys to keep the lights on. And it turns out they use all the town's electricity. They pollute the water supply. It's incredibly noisy. And there's a, you know, ton of weird radiation. Um, So there's, Alliances that you can build there uh, based on people's use of space and what they want from the land that you wouldn't get just by viewing them as another tech company at the same, you know, so that opens us up to alternatives at the same time, like by exploring these, both these technical and these like legal maneuvers that transform that, that bunker into a financial instrument. Um, we didn't get to talk about it, but there is, you know, there was a lot of debate in the IRS here about like whether this could actually be done because like, you know, it's not actually real estate. Obviously you can take the cage and you can move it somewhere else. Doesn't matter where the service goes, but Equinix lobbied hard and the IRS said, yes, this is a rentable piece of the internet. You are free to become a REIT. Um, so, you know, the IRS agrees the internet is a space, uh, but when we, we look at that process and how it's happened over the last 40 years, it becomes really clear that the internet is not some kind of, uh, you know, external kind of, you know, some meteor that hit capitalism from the outside. It was something that grew up and expanded into a certain um, shape in a certain space entirely to serve the needs of a weird financial sector. And that doesn't mean that we can't do anti-capitalist things on the internet. We might be doing them right now. It just does mean that um, there's not just a switch that we can hit where suddenly that um, financial structure can now do state planning. You know, it can't um, suddenly become the global communicative commons because it's not built equally. There's no reinvestment in Africa because they don't see it as the kind of market um, that would serve them in the same way it does Northern Virginia. You know, Northern Virginia is not as politically important as all of these data centers would suggest. It's just one weird long strip mall. Uh, these things are not built equally, and that doesn't mean that we can just take them and use them for whatever purpose that we want. So I think by like, you know, I, I'm really glad you guys invited me on because I think this is this article fits very much with your project. And, and like you said, uh, Jathan, it was kind of the shadow twin of yours um, because we really want to understand both the, the specificity of this economic thing um, in order to understand how to, to change it or shut it down and with whom. But we also need to understand the arrangements that brought it to life in the first place and how they're not maybe as flexible as we might dream. It's been really nice also to watch you both in conversation with each other because your articles and the in the, in your frameworks are in or in conversation with one another. I've had time to to sit with Jathan's and also with yours and and I do think that they present and also raise the question of like 
as you, as, as you talked about earlier, you know, like what are we interested in, in building, especially when these things have, when, as you as you put it at the top of the show, you know, the bones are structured a certain way, the movements and the possibilities and the visions that people entertain are structured a certain way, you know, um, how do we break out of that mold and, and, and redesign, um, a system and avoid any of the pitfalls that are in today's when it comes to structuring the types of vehicles for allocating resources, whether it comes to, to what sort of ends um, technologies are going to be deployed for, whose interests are going to be prioritized, you know, what, what groups are going to be targeted or not targeted. And, and your work really, I think, by 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 as you as you talked about disaggregating big tech gives a sharper focus into also um fault lines as well as like you know other issues that are lurking when it comes to what an internet that has been so deeply privatized and managed by neoliberals and is in the hands of you know financiers who trade it like an asset you know what what that means and what we do about that yeah i'm glad you said fault lines i think one of the things that i was surprised by in doing this project was just like which I shouldn't have been, but uh, it just surprised me like how much the two camps hated each other. You know, they both, they, they, they need (laughs) each other, obviously like the, you know, Facebook needs Equinix and vice versa. Um, but they, um, they're scared of each other. They're scheming about not just, uh, you know, how to cooperate, but how to escape each other, like any landlord and any tenant would, you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, yeah, exactly. As you, you know, at first glance, you think, where's the class solidarity? And then you zoom in and you're like, well, they're not, it's not going to be that. Of course not. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a a great way to to wrap this up. I mean, this has been a really, really uh, interesting and fruitful conversation. It's been a joy to have you on, Dan. Um, there'll be a link to your article, of course, in the episode description. But um, do you have anything else uh, to plug anywhere um, that people can find you or anything for people to look out for? Yeah, so um, I post copies of everything I write uh, up on my websites, which we'll link to here. It'll be dmgreen.net. Um, there's a free copy of the article there that we'll share. Um, and, you know, there's a really great book that someone came on here to talk about uh, almost a year ago now that I would also encourage everyone to check out, The Promise of Access, um, which is, you know, I, I think to the thing that Ed said earlier is is much more about the class coalition that dictated that uh, learn to code was the only way to survive. So uh, you definitely see this like running theme from my work where both um, the class composition, both of the rest of us who have endured this shift to a service economy with all these digital servers, but also importantly for me, like the class composition of capital and who, where they come from, what their interests are, how those interests work out, um, whether in agreement or in conflict. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, de- definitely go back and listen to um, our interview with Dan about his book. Uh, that's uh, it's a great book, and that that interview is still relevant. And this this article that we just spent, you know, this episode talking about is in many ways uh, uh, a direct continuation. As you talked about, your kind of your larger project of uh, uh, giving. Al Gore has due for inventing uh, the internet, right? Like a, a, a real kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't want credit for inventing something so terrible, but Al Gore deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> he really he does. does. The man doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> all right and with that you can also all find us of course at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week uh so find us there uh and until next time later, later, later.